We come now, brethren, to the preaching of God's word, and I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Hebrews and the sixth chapter. The book of Hebrews and the sixth chapter. And I will be reading and then preaching this morning on verses 1 through 3. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 3 this morning. And I invite you to read along silently as I read aloud. Here we read beginning in verse 1 of Hebrews 6. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace. We thank you for this opportunity this morning to look into your word and to hear it preached. We would ask for the work of the Holy Spirit this morning, that he would sovereignly operate as the sovereign spirit of God upon our hearts and minds, granting us understanding of this text, applying this text to our own consciences into our own lives in such a way that you are glorified and our thinking is renewed and our conduct is transformed for the glory of God. And so do your work, we pray, that only you can and will do. For we ask these things this morning in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. Beloved, as we saw last Sunday, there are some things that are characteristic of small children. And when we see these things, they can actually be quite adorable and enduring and endearing. For we all understand and come to expect that small children will behave in certain ways given their profound lack of life experience and their immaturity. However, when we observe the signs or the symptoms of immaturity in those who are older, in those who have had the opportunity to learn and mature from their own experiences, it is not as endearing to behold, but rather what may have been cute to see in a child quickly becomes a matter of serious concern when we're considering the growth of an adult. For when the symptoms of immaturity are active and evident in the lives of those who should know and behave better, it is not a laughing matter at all, nor is it something that parents or leaders or concerned individuals can rightly ignore. And these observations about children, immaturity, and the expectation of certain behavior are not only true in the context of families where we raise our children, but they're also true in the context and in the life of the church. For in the church of Jesus Christ, there will be spiritual infants, and the general posture of the church toward them should be one of love and patience and support, and especially if they are new to the faith and they have the need for special care and nurture. We should desire to provide that special care and nurture. 
In fact, there should be an understanding on the part of everyone in the church, and especially on the part of church leadership, that the members and attenders of a church will all be at different levels of spiritual maturity, and that a healthy church is one that is actively endeavoring to help everyone, regardless of where they are, grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And yet in order to do this, in order to encourage everyone to move forward toward maturity, it is sometimes necessary to confront those who should be more mature, but who are displaying instead the symptoms of spiritual immaturity. For while a Christian who behaves immaturely often does not see what harm he or she is causing, it is the duty of those who are more mature to urge everyone who has been hiding in the spiritual nursery for too long, and those who are acting more like infants than young adults, to quit their immature behavior and to start growing up. No doubt you recall from the message last Sunday that the writer of this book is doing this very thing here in the book of Hebrews, back in Hebrews chapter 5 and verses 11 through 14. In those verses, the writer of the book confronted the spiritual immaturity of many of his readers, and in doing so, you'll recall, he identified three symptoms of spiritual immaturity. Three symptoms of spiritual immaturity and, and how they should be addressed. And just for review's sake, let me repeat these three symptoms this morning and why they can be such a cause for concern in their lives and within the church. And what are these three symptoms of spiritual immaturity and what are their scriptural remedies? Well, the first symptom of spiritual immaturity is being inattentive to God's word. Being inattentive to God's word. For just as an infant has a very short attention span and is very easily distracted, so are childish, immature Christians. And clearly, the scriptural remedy to this first symptom is to be fully engaged in the hearing and in the study of God's word. For just as an infant gives his full attention to the bottle of milk from which he is being nursed, so a Christian, if he desires to grow up into full maturity, must give his or her attention to the word of God that is being taught and preached in their hearing. Then the second recognizable symptom of spiritual immaturity is the inability to teach others, the inability to teach others because of a weak spiritual constitution or the ignorance of the word of God, a weak spiritual constitution or the ignorance of the word of God. For in order to teach others, there must be the ability to digest more than just milk. And there must be enough knowledge of the word so that it can be explained and properly imparted and applied 
to others. And sadly, many Christians are not ready in terms of their spiritual constitution or in terms of what they know and can communicate to be used as teachers. Although in terms of exposure to the word of God and their own Christian experience, they should already be teachers. And therefore, the scriptural remedy to this second symptom of immaturity is to endeavor by God's grace to develop one's constitution through a steady diet of the word, through the strong meat of the word and not just the milk of the word, and to be learning more so that you and I can impart it to those around us. For while all Christians are not called by God to the office of teacher, all Christians should know enough about the gospel and the cardinal truths of God's word to be able to teach others within their own sphere of influence. Then the third recognizable symptom of spiritual immaturity is a lack of skill in handling God's word. A lack of skill in handling God's word. For just as a child is not capable of handling a tool with skill, since his coordination and his balance are not well developed, so an immature Christian is likewise unskilled with the word, and he is not able to utilize and to apply the word of God with accuracy or with great effectiveness. And of course, this is why we don't want novices, by the way. This is why we don't want immature Christian men as church leaders. Because men who are unskilled in handling the word of God are not only prone to teach error, but they can also cause a great deal of spiritual confusion and harm within a local congregation as well. And needless to say, the third remedy to this third symptom or the remedy to this third symptom of spiritual immaturity is to learn how to use the word of God skillfully. And this is done by developing one's powers of discernment over time and through consistent practice. For the development of any true skill at any level of mastery requires time and development. For no one can be mature in using the word properly without devoting himself to the mastery of the word. Therefore, if you and I would be skillful in the word of righteousness, as the writer to the Hebrews refers to God's word, we must devote the time and the practice necessary to do it. Now, why do I take the time to review these remedies again this morning before we get to the text here in Hebrews 6, verses 1 through 3? Well, I do this because it is with this mindset that we've been discussing, this mindset that the pursuit of Christian maturity requires our full attention and that we cannot remain in ignorance and that we must invest ourselves in the mastery of following Christ that we are now urged by the writer to go on to maturity. 
to press on towards spiritual mastery. And if you and I can learn anything by first considering the symptoms of immaturity, it's that spiritual maturity does not come automatically and without effort. Let me repeat that. Spiritual maturity does not come automatically and without effort, nor is it something that we can simply dismiss or refuse to take seriously. For while it is the Holy Spirit who matures us and he will continue to work in us despite our failures and despite our resistance to change, you and I are not free to determine whether we will pursue growth or not. It's not our choice. It's not left us up to us to decide whether we're going to mature or not. You and I are not free to remain spiritual infants, living as though we have no duty or no responsibility to grow up and to stop behaving childishly. It's not our option. It's not our option. But rather, all of us as Christ's redeemed people will most certainly be guided down the path of spiritual maturity, whether it be willingly or unwillingly. We will all move in that direction. We will do so willingly and with joy, or we will do so even unwillingly, if necessary, through God's chastisement. For the sake of Christ's honor and our own spiritual happiness, let us move on to maturity most willingly. Amen? Most willingly. Let our heart's desire be to grow in grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Let our single focus be to pursue Christ and his kingdom first and foremost. Let our chief resolve be to develop a strong spiritual constitution out of which we can serve and teach others. Let us become increasingly knowledgeable and skillful in the interpretation and application of God's word. For being spiritually mature begins with these essential mindsets. It begins with these essential mindsets. It requires this kind of resolve and discipline to pursue. And of course, all of this leads us directly to our text this morning, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, which begins here with the word, therefore. Therefore. For given that all these things are required of us as Christ's redeemed people, and as those who now share in a heavenly calling, it is now therefore absolutely necessary that we do the following. It is therefore absolutely necessary that we go on to maturity, for we cannot stay as spiritual infants, nor should we desire to stay as spiritual infants. And since we have no choice but to move forward, this should be our desire anyway. And so let us now take the necessary steps. Let us now take the necessary steps. And what are these first steps according to our text? Well, first, according to verse 1 here of Hebrews chapter 6, we must be willing to leave 
the elementary doctrine of Christ and move on to maturity. We must be willing to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and move on to maturity. Now, what exactly is the author of this letter urging these readers to do here? This seems like a, an unusual, maybe even a strange statement to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. Well, at first glance, it might appear, especially to those who are not well skilled in the use of Scripture, that the writer is urging his believers to stop being so preoccupied with the basics concerning Jesus Christ and to move on instead to something that is a little more advanced and a little more profound. In fact, this is a very common interpretation in many commentaries today, which suggests that growing up spiritually somehow leads us beyond the doctrine of Christ, somehow leads us beyond the elementary principles of Christ and away from the basics of the gospel and into a much deeper level of content instead. That's how it's often explained. And yet, beloved, despite the apparent popularity of that interpretation today, I want to assure you in the strongest possible words I can this morning that those kinds of notions regarding the doctrine of Christ and spiritual maturity are simply not true. They're not true. For two important reasons, that interpretation is not true. For two important reasons. First of all, they are not true because we are, as believers, never in the place in our Christian lives where we outgrow the need for Jesus Christ. We are never in the place in our Christian lives where we outgrow our need of Jesus Christ or where we outgrow or go beyond what the Bible teaches us about him and his teachings. But rather, as we continue to grow and as we continue to mature in one faith, we become more and more aware of what we don't know. And we become more and more aware of how desperately we need what the Bible teaches us about Jesus Christ. Therefore, any suggestions that the writer could be urging his readers, you and I here as well, to move beyond the basics of Christ and to go to something more advanced or more helpful to us as maturing believers is both unbiblical and unhelpful. So whatever the writer is saying here, he's not telling us to leave off the doctrine of Christ and the basics concerning Jesus Christ and go to something more advanced. In fact, as we grow as Christians, we realize there's nothing more advanced than the study of Christ, right? Second, these notions that we must move beyond the basic doctrines of Christ or away from the basics of the gospel in order to mature spiritually are simply not true because it is the doctrine of Christ and his glory as displayed in the gospel that we are to preach and teach whenever the saints of God are assembled together. This is the content of what we are to say when we meet together. In fact, in describing the biblical content of his own preaching and teaching in the church at Corinth, 
The Apostle Paul declared these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He said, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or with wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you. You know the rest of this. Nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul didn't say, hey, when I get there, I'm going to blow your minds with some really advanced material that you've never really heard before. Hold on tight. We're going to leave the doctrines of Christ, the elementary doctrines of Christ, and move on to something more advanced. No, he said, I've determined when I get to you, when I'm ministering among you, my subject matter will be Christ and him crucified. And so in Paul's mind, what he needed to mature the saints in Corinth was not some temporary diet of the doctrines of Christ, followed by the deeper and more advanced truths of Scripture later on, but the simple truth of Christ and the gospel as it applied. And to teach that time and time again, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, to the spiritual needs of God's people. And of course, brethren, this should be our approach to the pulpit ministry here at Sovereign Grace Baptist Church in Bonham as well. For in my mind, and I, I trust in your mind as well, and certainly in the mind of those men who are preparing for the ministry here also, that the way to mature this congregation is not by urging the people to move beyond the basic doctrines of Christ, to move beyond the gospel by which you have been saved, but to urge you to hold steadfast to the simplicity of the gospel, which you already know so well, and to discover for yourself what an endless well of truth that really is. An endless well of truth that really is. And the endless well of truth, the gospel of his grace, truly is also. Therefore, I'm convinced that we can say with great confidence that the writer to the Hebrews is not leading his readers away from the doctrine of Christ here in Hebrews 6.1, but he is and he will continue to lead them to Christ, to Christ here and throughout the rest of this book. In fact, if we look at the layout of the book of Hebrews, we'll see that chapters 7 through 10 of Hebrews is solely devoted to the person and the excellency of Jesus Christ. So he's certainly not leading them away from the doctrine of Christ. He's building on the doctrine of Christ. He sees it as a deep well that he cannot plumb the depths of. And that's how we should see it also. And so to suggest that the writer is pointing his readers away from the doctrine of Christ at this place here in Chapter 6 goes against the, the very flow of this book. It also undermines the importance of all that has already been taught about Jesus Christ in this book so far. But rather, what the writer clearly appears to be doing here, brethren, is urging his believers to move beyond their own elementary understanding of Christ. You see the difference? Not beyond the elementary doctrine of Christ itself in terms of its content and depth and wealth, 
but to move beyond their own elementary understanding of Christ and his doctrines. For it is not the doctrine of Christ itself that was elementary and in need of replacing, but it was their own elementary understanding, their own childish comprehension of those doctrines that needed to be replaced instead. And so in a very real sense, the writer is saying here in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, particularly verse 1, let us leave behind that elementary understanding or that limited comprehension of Christ and his doctrines that we've been characterized by for so long as immature children and let us go on at this moment and at this place in time to a much more mature understanding of these spiritual realities. For those who possess a mature comprehension, a mature understanding of Christ and the doctrines that are centered on him will not be easily distracted. In fact, they will be able to detect whether the doctrine of Christ is being preached or not because they're so familiar with it and they spend so much time in it. They will not accept any substitute for the preaching and teaching of the gospel because their priority is the doctrine of Christ. Nor will they find it hard to digest the richness of Christ's person or his promises to them for their spiritual constitutions will be strong and healthy. I promise you, Spend time in the doctrine of Christ. Spend time in his excellencies, his person, his perfections, his works, his miracles, all that he does. And it will ground you in a way that you've never been grounded before. It will give your faith a depth and a breadth that you've never experienced in the past. Those who focus on the doctrine of Christ, the content of it, and drink deeply from the well of it will be well fed. Well fed and nurtured on the meat of the word. By the way, Christ is the meat of the word. If you're wondering what the meat of the word is, the meat of the word is not some hidden mystery that we have to dig for. The meat of the word is Christ. He's the centerpiece of it all. And we find that he is indeed meat to us. He's meat that can be digested. He's meat that can nourish us. Nor will they be unskilled in their use of the word. For those who possess a mature comprehension of the doctrine of Christ are able to share the gospel effectively. And they are not hesitant to show others how Christ is, as I just said, the very center of all of God's saving purposes. Those who are spiritually mature see Christ throughout all the scripture. That's an indication of spiritual maturity. When you read the Bible, can you find the connection to Christ? Do you understand how the word of God is laid out in such a way that Christ is the centerpiece? Can you see Christ in every act of God's gracious providence? Therefore, beloved, our first step towards spiritual maturity is not, is not, to step away from Christ. It is not to dare to think that we can somehow go beyond him. You cannot go beyond him. But to find the source of our maturity in him. By learning of him. By feeding on him. By leading others to him. 
for the path to full maturity begins and ends with Jesus. Then the next step that the writer stresses here in this call to Christian maturity, and we see it here in verses 1 through 3, is our need to exercise greater spiritual discernment in our understanding and use of doctrine. Greater spiritual discernment in our understanding and use of doctrine. In fact, you'll recall, brethren, that it is the unskilled use of Scripture that characterizes most who are spiritually immature. And so now what the writer addresses here in these two verses is the need for discernment. And how does he go about that? He does this by emphasizing to his readers their need to discern their own needs because becoming an adult involves feeding oneself and not depending entirely on others to feed us. And in order to do so, believers must be able to make judgments. Hear me carefully. Believers have to be able to make judgments about what doctrines or truths that they need to hear and be instructed in according to where they are spiritually. And according to the writer here in verses 1 through 3, there are some foundational doctrines that these believers did know. They did know them, but which they needed to make sure that they didn't become overly preoccupied with them alone. In other words, they needed to know certain doctrines. It was essential that they knew them, but they needed to be able to recognize when they needed to move on from those doctrines for the purposes of growth. For while we are never commanded to move on from Christ and the doctrines associated with him, there are some doctrines which are identified here in verse 1 as foundational, which we must not become overly preoccupied with or fixated upon at the expense of others. And I hope you're following what I'm saying. There are some doctrines that are truly foundational and you need to know them to have a good foundation in your own spiritual growth. But they are foundational in nature. They're designed to be moved on from. They're designed to be built upon. Not to be fixated upon. Not to be preoccupied with indefinitely. For the idea behind a foundational doctrine is that it serves as a foundation, as I said. And a foundation is intended to be built upon. In fact, if things are not gradually added to the foundation, then the building never gets built. So I hope you understand what I'm saying. There are some doctrines that are foundational and we need to know them and be established in them. But if we only concentrate on those foundational doctrines and we never build upon those doctrines, we never get to full maturity. We, we never see the building erected. We never see the walls go up. We, we, we never see the ceiling go on. And so in the case of these believers who are being addressed here in these verses, they, they needed to move on from certain doctrines, not the doctrine of Christ. Again, I've made that distinction. But they needed to move on from other 
more elementary foundational doctrines. It's interesting to notice how the writer emphasizes this, for he declares here in verse 1 of, verse, of chapter 6 that his intention is not to lay again a foundation. It's not to lay again a foundation. This statement, needless to say, is very instructive to those who desire to be skillful teachers of the word of God. Here's what we need to learn as skillful teachers of the word of God. There is a time in the course of our teaching when we need to lay a solid foundation. And to neglect to lay a solid foundation would be foolish. And yet there is also a time when the foundational work must be considered completed. It must be considered completed and we must move on to building the house. We must move on to building the structure instead. We see this problem in many ministries throughout church history where great labor was put forth to establish a solid foundation, but for one reason or another, they never really moved on in their understanding of all of scripture and the whole counsel of God, and the building was never truly completed. So what the writer is saying here, as I just suggested, is that these believers needed to move on from some doctrines that were so foundational to them so that further growth could occur on what had already been built. And what were these doctrines in particular, these foundational doctrines, that the writer suggests that they needed to move on from? Well, notice beginning here in verse 1 that the writer first urges them to move on here from the doctrine of repentance, from dead works, and of faith in God. For of all the doctrines, brethren, that are essential to one's understanding about salvation and of what God requires of us in response to gospel preaching are these two doctrines. Because without the ability to repent and without the ability to exercise faith, to believe, you and I could not receive the gift of salvation at all. In fact, we... We need to begin with the doctrine of salvation, and we need to understand how repentance and faith are involved within the expression of that doctrine. And therefore, it's only appropriate that these two doctrines, the need to repent of our dead works, our works done in our sinful flesh, and the need for faith in Christ are most often the very first doctrines that a new believer will learn about. And they are usually embraced by new believers with great enthusiasm as they should be. In fact, most of us have experienced this enthusiasm for ourselves when we were saved. And even when we later came to a greater understanding of the doctrines of grace, you remember that, don't you? when you first discovered the sovereignty of God and salvation in Scripture. And we learn that repentance and faith are not only necessary for salvation, but they are both gifts from God. And this knowledge transformed our understanding of what happened to us. This knowledge transformed our understanding of the doctrine of salvation. This is usually 
the first doctrine that we learn. So it was good that they had a foundation in the doctrines of repentance and in the doctrines of faith or belief in God. It's easy to see why these two doctrines, repentance and faith, were so beloved in the eyes of God's people. And yet, while these two doctrines are both important and foundational, they can't be the full extent of what we preach and teach in the church. Did you hear that? They cannot be the full extent of what we teach and preach in the church. I'm not saying that there's not a time to preach repentance and faith in God. There's always a time, in a sense, to preach repentance and faith in God if we're proclaiming the gospel. But this cannot be solely what we concentrate on and solely what we teach in the church and expect the church to grow into full maturity. In fact, if we only taught the need for repentance and faith, we would doubtless see many individuals saved because of the content of the gospel, but they would ultimately remain very childlike and very shallow in their understanding of the Christian faith if they never heard much more than that. And to be honest with you, there are some contexts where that's all the people of God hear about is repentance and faith, and they never move on to things that are more than foundational. And when we see this, it's a sad state of affair. There has to be more than just the preaching of the doctrine of salvation. Therefore, the writer to the Hebrews was both wise and right to urge his readers to, to know these truths, to cherish these truths, to defend these truths, but not to major on them alone. Not to major on the doctrine of salvation alone, for there is much more than the doctrine of salvation. Let me take it a little step further. There's much more than the doctrines of grace. And we as Reformed believers love the doctrines of grace. But if we limit ourselves purely to the doctrines of grace, then we're not teaching the whole counsel of God. I'm not saying that all of Scripture is not impacted and influenced by those doctrines because they most surely are. But if all we're doing is articulating the doctrines of grace continually so that we can make sure that our people understand how God sovereignly works in salvation and we never take them beyond that, then we're not leading them to maturity. We need to understand that. We need to think about that. There's much more than the doctrine of salvation and the doctrines of grace to be taught and learned by God's people. A wise teacher of scripture will progressively move his readers beyond these foundational doctrines. Then secondly, not only were these believers urged to move beyond the doctrines of repentance and faith, but we also see here at the beginning of verse 2 of chapter 6 that they were also urged to move beyond instructions on washings. Instruction on washings. What kind of washings? were in mind here. Washings were in mind. Well, some scholars have suggested that the washings that are being referred to here are the ceremonial washings associated with Old Testament Judaism. And there were many washings that the Jews went through and 
encourage people to practice. And the writer, in their mind, is urging his readers to stop being so concerned about those Jewish ceremonies and to now realize that they were involved in Christian worship. However, there's nothing here in our text itself that would suggest that this is what the writer of the Hebrews has in mind. Rather, other scholars suggest that the Greek word that is translated washings here in verse 2, baptisma, should actually be translated baptisms instead. And if this is the case, and I think a good case can be made that that's what should be done, it would appear that the concern behind this reference to verse 2 is, is not over the contrast between Old Testament and New Testament washings, but over the question of which baptisms mentioned in the New Testament were most essential. For the New Testament actually mentions several baptisms. I, I know that you're aware of this. It talks about a baptism by fire. It talks to baptism by water talks to baptism by the Holy Spirit. And of course it would make sense for the writer to mention baptisms here and especially the baptisms by the Spirit and by water because they are foundational Christian doctrines and they are usually some of the first doctrines that are taught to new believers after the doctrines of repentance and faith, right? You teach them repentance and faith, and then what do you teach them? You teach them baptism. And so it's likely that the writer is saying to his Hebrew readers here in verse 2, your present concern over the necessity of baptisms is indeed important because baptism not only symbolizes our union with Christ, but our union with his body, the church of Jesus Christ as well. But there comes a time what the writer is saying. There comes a time in the growth of a believer that within the teaching of the church, the focus needs to move beyond baptism. We can understand why they were excited about baptism. We should be excited about baptism, but there is a time when we need to move on. Now, I'm not suggesting that baptism is not important. In fact, we, we just witnessed the baptism of Mike Agnew a few weeks ago, and we were reminded of the importance of being baptized in obedience to Jesus Christ. But we must also recognize that baptism, while foundational, is not the only doctrine. It's not even the primary Christian doctrine that we should be teaching and emphasizing. So you see what the writer is doing here? He's helping them to understand how to discern the place and the importance of doctrines within the church. All of them are important. All of them are given by God. All of them should be taught. But there's a time and a season and a place in the life of the church and in the progression of the church in terms of maturity that these things should be emphasized. Then thirdly, let us note here in verse 2 as well that the writer urges his readers to move on from their concern over the laying on of hands. The laying on of hands. And what is being referred to here? Well, some have suggested that this is a reference to the early apostolic practice 
of laying on of hands as the means of conveying and confirming the reception of the Holy Spirit. You'll remember as you read through the book of Acts, you saw that the apostles would often lay hands on individuals and they would receive the Spirit as a apostolic validation of what was taking place in their lives. They were tying the movement of the Spirit with the ministry of the apostles. And some have suggested that that's what's being conveyed here. However, the problem with identifying this verse with the actions of the apostles is that that was only a temporary action within the church, and it was only performed by the apostles themselves. And so it would not have been practiced by the church as a whole, merely by the apostles. Nor does it seem likely that young Christians in that day would be preoccupied with something that the apostles did. Rather, it seems more likely, and uh, you can study this out for yourself in greater detail if you want. It seems more likely that the laying on of hands mentioned here in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 2 was a reference to Christian ordination. A reference to Christian ordination where the hands of the elders are laid upon a man who's being recognized and set aside for the work of the ministry. Maybe you've seen an ordination ceremony before. You've seen this actually take place. I think this is interesting that the text mentions it as we're going through the book of Hebrews as a church because we're talking about leadership in our church at this time. We're working with men who desire to be elders and ultimately it's our desire to see the laying on of hands upon men as elders within the church. This could be a reference to that very practice. In fact, the Apostle Paul mentioned this doctrine to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 22, where he declared, Do not be hasty, do not be too quick in laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. So the laying on of hands here that's being mentioned in Hebrews chapter 6 could indeed be the same laying on of hands that Paul mentions to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5. I think it is. For Christian ordination is a foundational doctrine of the church. We need to have gifted and godly men to shepherd the flock of God. No doubt this was a real concern at that time that the book of Hebrews was being written since there were so few men who were mature enough to lead and to teach. And it should be a concern for our churches today as well. We, we should not lay hands on any men too quickly. It is a foundational concern within the church of God. And yet, while the practice of Christian ordination is important, while the practice of Christian ordination should not be taken lightly, there are other doctrines that need to be addressed in God's house as well. Because the Christian faith is about more than preparing and ordaining men for the ministry. There is a time and a season for that. But the Christian faith involves more than that. The foundation of Christian doctrine in the church involves more than that. Then lastly... Let us notice here at the end of verse 2 that the writer mentions two doctrines related to last things. 
two doctrines related to last things or what we call the study or the doctrine of eschatology. These two doctrines are the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. The resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And no doubt the writer mentioned them here because there were some, even by this time in the New Testament, who were denying these doctrines. You'll recall from your reading of the New Testament, there were, there were some who were denying that there would be a physical resurrection from the dead. There were some who were even suggesting that there may not be an eternal judgment. More importantly, these two doctrines are foundational to the Christian faith. For if the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment are not true, we have serious problems. The resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment distinguish the Christian faith from all other false religions. To deny either of these doctrines is to deny the Christian faith as a whole. There will be a final resurrection there will be a final judgment to come. And yet, while it is important to stress these doctrines, especially in a society that does not believe in a life to come, and a society that does not believe in a future judgment, nevertheless, these are not the only Christian doctrines that we are called to preach and teach. And if all we do is emphasize last things, if all we do is talk about eschatology, we will not be balanced. We will not be mature in how we lead and feed God's people. Let this be a warning to churches in our contemporary culture that are so infatuated and so preoccupied with matters of eschatology. In the end, we will end up with imbalanced and immature Christians if all we talk about is what's going to happen at the end. Maturity is the primary issue here set before us in Hebrews chapter 6. The issue is not whether these doctrines are true or foundational because they are. But the main issue was, were these Hebrew readers right in being so preoccupied about them and was it time for them to move on and clearly brethren they needed to move on they needed to move on in their growth and their understanding of what was needed for their own maturity and the truth is some of us in our own faith need to move on also we need to move on also. Maybe we spend too much time being preoccupied with a particular doctrine. Maybe we have a, what they call a pet doctrine that we really spend a lot of time with and we have a tendency to judge everybody by how they view that doctrine or what they teach about that doctrine. That's not healthy. That's not balanced. That's not being committed to the whole counsel of God. Let us notice here also in closing in verse 3 of chapter 6 that the writer does not dismiss the possibility that these doctrines will be emphasized again. 
He does not dismiss the possibility that these doctrines would be emphasized again, but he promises to do so as the Lord should lead. Notice the statement here in verse 3, and this we will do if God permits. And that might seem like a difficult statement to interpret, but I don't really think it is. It's a confession that we should allow God in his sovereignty to determine through our ability to discern through the work of the Holy Spirit what the needs are and what should be taught. We should be teaching certain things as God permits, as God leads, but the idea is to move on to maturity. So what should determine what is preached in the pulpit? What should determine what is preached in the pulpit? Well, certainly we should only preach what God has supplied in his word, but it needs to be applied to God's people skillfully with discernment. For the goal is not to simply fill God's people's minds with biblical facts and information, but the goal is to make God's people mature in Jesus Christ. And that only comes by teaching and preaching the whole counsel of God. Not by limiting ourselves to a handful of foundational truths and pet doctrines. For Christian maturity does not come by following the guidance of men and their preferences on what to preach, but it only comes by following the guidance of the Spirit who leads us into all truth, who leads us into the whole counsel of God, who powerfully applies the word to our individual areas of need. O congregation, may God move us towards maturity. May he help us to see the symptoms of immaturity in our own lives. May he move us to take these first steps that are so necessary for maturity that we may grow as individuals and as a congregation. May Jesus Christ receive all the glory and all the honor and all the praise through what is preached this morning and through the doctrines that are consistently and faithfully and fully declared in this church in the days to come. May God mature us, we pray. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this text of Scripture, how much great insight is found here in knowing not only what the symptoms of spiritual immaturity are, but what steps we should take to move on to full maturity. And so we would ask your blessing upon us now as we, as we think through these truths, as we process them, as we uh, examine our own lives and our own state of maturity and determined by your grace and with your help where we should be and what we should focus on. Help us as a congregation to pursue maturity. Help us not to just focus on a few themes and a few doctrines. Help us not to be a church that's only focused on the pet peeves, uh, the pet doctrines uh, that we have as individuals but help us to declare the whole counsel of God faithfully and may your spirit work in our lives and in the lives of those who hear these doctrines preached in our midst. 
For we ask these things this morning in Jesus' blessed name. Amen.